Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm your host, Tal Zemanovic. Earlier today, I was joined online by Dr. Kate Murphy to discuss her new monograph, Behind the Wireless, A History of Early Women at the BBC. The book was published recently by Palgrave Macmillan. In the book... Welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm your host, Tal Zemanovic. Earlier today, I was joined online by Dr. Kate Murphy to discuss her new monograph, Behind the Wireless, A History of Early Women at the BBC. The book was published recently by Palgrave Macmillan. In the book, Murphy argues that although women were everywhere from the very early days of the BBC, they were, and still are, absent from most of the historiography devoted to this illustrious institution. In this vibrant monograph, Murphy sets out to find these hidden female figures. A former producer of the long-running program Women's Hour and currently a senior lecturer at Barnmouth University in the UK, Murphy is cognizant both of women's contribution to the BBC and of the challenges they faced working there. In Behind the Wireless, Murphy delivers on the title's promise. First, she offers a detailed portrait of the BBC in the interwar period as a unique workplace, complete with medical services, a subsidized canteen, and a country club for its workers. She demonstrates why the fact that the company was created around a new technology made it especially suitable for women in general and ambitious ones in particular. Second, she illuminates the daily routines, challenges, and opportunities for the scores of female typists, secretaries, clerks, and telephone operators who labored for the company. Murphy supplements this institutional history with four case studies of outstanding women who rose to the top echelons of the organization. These three components make for a fascinating read. The book will complement the scholarship about the BBC, but also add to the current exploration of the participation of women in the workforce during the interwar period. I expect that the book will be of great interest for scholars of media, gender, modern Britain, and labor relations. It is also a wonderful example of how to bring all these concerns into conversation. Thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoy this interview. Hi, Kate. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning. Um, Could you begin our conversation with telling us a little about your academic background and what brought you to this project? Well, I have quite an unusual academic background in that I've only actually been an academic uh, for about four and a half years. Previous to that, I worked at the BBC and I was a a radio producer. I worked on a very long-running programme called Women's Hour, which I think is, I think it must be the kind of preeminent women's programme in the world. It started in 1946 and it's been broadcasting now for, you know, over 70 years. So I have this kind of interesting mix of being a, a radio practitioner who is now an academic, although I do I run the history degree at Bournemouth University now, which is, a, you know, a wonderful new development for me. Um, so that, so the, the, the kind of my, my research into BBC women kind of stems back to my absolute passion for women's history, which goes back to my early 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, and then working at the BBC, when I got to Women's Hour, 
I had the you know, joyful job of producing history, women's history, for many, many years. And um, I, at the same time as my family were growing up, I suddenly had this crazy idea to do a PhD. And, um, and research had, had started doing this amazing research into the early early BBC, women in the early BBC, which was a completely untold, well, pretty much an untold story. Uh, there was a little tiny bit about it, but very, very little known. And um, I, I was I was particularly inspired by it because um, usually you hear about women's work and those sorts of things in the 20s and 30s being quite a difficult time, lots of discrimination and, and problems, which is certainly true. But the BBC seemed to, seemed to back the trend a bit and show something that was a bit more, a bit different and a bit more kind of positive, a bit more a positive story for women, but with a kind of a sting as well, I think. Okay, we'll get into the story of the, uh, of these women, but um, I want to ask you before this, um, because it seemed to me that one of your, uh, the book's missions is to restore the women back into this historical narrative of the early years of the BBC. And, you know, as you were starting to explain now, women were actually everywhere uh, in the BBC, as you write. Um, but then again, they were absent from the historiography. So I'm curious, where did you find these hidden figures? Like, what were, where were they hidden in the archives and why there, weren't they noticed earlier? Well, I think it's a classic story that all the, there are many, many institutional histories about the BBC, um, but they they all you know they they have focused on men or or different sorts of, of BBC history. In fact, the thing that was I think most startling that the kind of the, ma the kind of the major kind of historian of the BBC, Asa Briggs, who wrote these five enormous volumes about the BBC history, and mm -hmm. um, he there, there's a there's a kind of a little a paragraph in the second volume that that mentions in one paragraph these kind of tantalising women and it's got lots of these names in these these women who were very important in the development of the BBC in this paragraph and you just think what so he was aware of them I mean that as, as, I'll, as I'll talk a bit more there were there were two extremely significant women Mary Somerville and Hilda Matheson who who are known about and were picked up about but this kind of this background is just so many women were doing so many extraordinary things and not just making programs because I think When you look at, obviously, people tend to think of TV and radio about the people who make the programmes or who are on the programmes. What you aren't looking at is the kind of the edifice, this enormous amount of the, the people that are there making the organisation work as well. So I've looked broadly at the, at the BBC in the, in the whole. So it's not just the programme makers who are at the top, you know, the kind of the top end, but they're supported by so many other, you know, press officers and, I don't know, even if you're working in the canteen, you know, there's all sorts of things where you're typing. All these women were necessary to get the BBC to function. And they were, you know, a third of the staff were women, more or less, at that time. So it's quite an interesting, interesting thing to find out. You actually, I mean, you describe this extremely vibrant atmosphere um, of the BBC and uh, of these extremely energetic women, a lot of them kind of making up the job as they go, which is, you know, like the librarians or the ones that are uh, in charge of the photograph collections and, you know, their real understanding of the historical place of the BBC, of, you know, their mission, which is extraordinary. Um, but before maybe you'll tell us these stories, um, could you set the, the historical scene for us? So what when was the BBC established and what was unique about its mission? And uh, what was the character of the organization in the interwar period? Because we are talking about roughly from the very early 20s till um, just up to World War II. Um, how big was it? Where was it located? What did it look like? Well, it starts at the very end of 1922, and it's a tiny, tiny little organization. Uh, broadcasting was, was 
was becoming known, this idea of wireless was becoming known. Uh, and during the First War in Britain, it had been, it had been taken over for military, military you know, reasons. And so even the kind of the, there wasn't even really an amateur uh, wireless scene, which had been very big in America. So America had this kind of amateur wireless, and then it kind of took off with a big kind of commercial enterprise. So when the British government or, you know, people started to think about wireless in, in the UK, they were aware of what was happening in the States. And um, there was a, a kind of an idea that, that in Britain it would be done differently. And this company called the British Broadcasting Company was set up at the end of 1922 to kind of coordinate the development of wireless in the UK, as working with commercial wireless makers at first. Um, but then John Reith, who's a kind of a thread, a really thread through the book, who came in as a um, general manager and you know, admitted he didn't even know what broadcasting was when he got the job, um, was... So he had, you know, he could, he's, he was, had this kind of vision for broadcasting that fitted in with lots of, with kind of the ideas about kind of an informed democracy at that time. So the idea, obviously, um, there was a huge class system in Britain. Education was very split, you know, between kind of wealthy and, and poor people. And all, there were lots of differences. This idea of how you, people are getting the vote, you know, women have obviously got the vote in 1918, some women have got the vote in 1918. So there's this, just so many people that, that weren't, weren't well informed, I suppose, um, and this idea that, that broadcasting was a way of educating, it, well, inform, educate, and educate, and entertain with the kind of the bywords of the BBC. So this idea that you could use the BBC as, as, a, as a very as a fantastic social tool in many ways, um, but also obviously for entertainment. So it's ha- it was juggling the, those that sort of vision, but it did have this very strong public service remit from very early on. So the people who came to work at the BBC were in, uh, uh, largely passionate about about that, that kind of, that kind of ethos, I think. And uh, it was just so modern and pioneering as well because um, it was brand new. And the, as you know, the twenties are kind of a, a decade when there's lots of kind of new, exciting things happening. Electricity, all sorts of new developments are happening, um, and the, the kind of BBC fits into this. It's a modern organisation, and it sees itself as a modern organisation, which is one of the reasons why. It's approach to women, it, I think, is different from the kind of more entrenched and established um, professions and uh, institutions that were around at the time. So it, it, it starts tiny, but then during the, during the interwar years, it really does take off. So it's mainly in London, mm-hmm. but does have um, small um, stations around the country. Um, London is head, head, headquarters. So there's local, there's local radio and there's um, kind of main radio that kind of work together. Uh, they start off at Savoy Hill. Um, on the Thames up until 1932, which is a kind of big ramshackle building that they that they loaned from the Institute of Electrical Electrical Engineers, mm-hmm. and then in 1932 they moved to Bespoke Broadcasting House, which the BBC is still in today. It's a very grand building, and I think uh, that there's this kind of a change around that time. You see a change from the kind of this kind of pioneering, rather shambolic organisation that's gradually becoming professionalised into a much more professional and bureaucratic organisation once it's got into Broadcasting House. So that there's a change, I think, um, and it's growing so fast, uh, has a very hierarchical management structure as well. So it's kind of, it's a really interesting organisation because it grows so quickly. And I think for lots of reasons, it's fascinating to study at this time. So it, 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 from its very beginning, it's seen as kind of a national good, right? It's something the wireless is not seeing, like you mentioned, the US. It's not seen as a commercial enterprise that anybody could actually opening broadcasting station, but the wireless is something that in a way belongs to the nation. Um, and so there's a kind of also a feeling of responsibility and uh, 
kind of, you know, doing a, a, a civil service and not only a commercial adventure, right? So there's... Well, yeah, very much. At the very beginning, obviously, it's a novel. It's, very, it's, novelty. it's, a, very, it's a novelty, but gradually that kind of, that, that, that sense prevails. And um, it is, I mean, it's extraordinary, uh, that, that way of kind of bringing the nation together. So I love the idea, you know, that... It's, it's hard to imagine, really, that you would never have heard people's voices. So the, the king speaking on, on the wireless in 1924, it's kind of was an extraordinary event. People could hear his voice or sharing concerts because, of course, you know, in your local town, you might go to a, a concert, but now you could hear concerts, you know, live from London and they'd go to Covent Garden and, and record live opera. I mean, everything is live at this time. Very little is pre-recorded because of the technology. But just coming into your home that you would have the latest you know dance bands um plays all sorts of amazing things would be coming and, he, and that idea of this kind of shared listening that you were listening at the same time so conversations about what you'd heard of course you know it picks up quite slowly at first not that many people have access to wireless and it's quite amateur and it's often made by you know dad and the son are kind of fiddling around with you know all sorts of valves and all sorts of things to make these amateur wirelesses but then it becomes much more commercialized the production of wirelesses and uh, it's it seen as you know working class families really latch onto it because it's for for not that much cost. There's a, there's a license fee and the cost of the wireless. Uh, you do have you know the world comes to you, so it provides this kind of amazing um, amazing source of all sort you know information and and entertainment in your in your own home. Mm-hmm. So it has this modern technology and it has this new idea about um, kind of what you know how it fits in democracy, which is. You know, the franchise, as you, met, uh, you mentioned, has been broadened very recently, so there's many more people that could actually vote. Um, so it fits into that, but as you're describing the book, the very kind of environment of, of the place and kind of the, the working conditions are also very unusual and in a way new, right? You described the subsidized restaurants, the health services. <laughs> These are new. So these these are being picked up by other kind of pioneering organisations. Um, the idea of welfare um, is seen as is something that's coming in in the twenties. Um, partly, you know, they, there's concerns about trade unionism and uh, and this. And I suppose if they feel if there's kind of staff welfare and things, that's less of an issue. So there's lots of reasons why it's seen as good to have staff welfare. Uh, there's a really big um, company, a big, really big shop in the UK called John Lewis. It's one of a really kind of big, famous department store, and that was in the late twenties. They had they had a very inspiring um, person who ran. Uh, John Lewis again was he was introducing lots and lots of these kind of welfare reforms and had very interesting working conditions for their their women as well. So I think there's some link between being modern, um, having this kind of this kind of welfare ethos and and the way that you treat women to some extent seems to go hand in hand. Um, so it was I mean it was I think the, the other thing to remember is that when it started because it was so new and pioneering um, that. And it didn't have set practices at all. I mean, they, they were making them up, they were made up as they went along. And they just needed good people on board. So it's, you get the sense that whether you're, whether you're male or female at the beginning, you're just all hands on deck, you know, to get, to get programs out, to get the broadcast done. So there is a kind of this great sense of kind of democracy and pioneering spirit within the BBC at the beginning, which is, I think, again, part of this sort of, um, just a different, different attitude towards, women at that time 
What did women actually do at the BBC of these decades? Well, when they, when they started off, they would come in. Well, I mean, there, there is this great split. The BBC is very hierarchical and it is it, structured so, I mean, as was the British class system. So it is structured with a kind of the, your salaried staff or the kind of senior staff and then you've got your wage staff. And that does make quite a, lot, quite a big difference to your kind of status and how much you earn. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're, if you're waged, you are earning pounds a week. So this is so a good wage at the time would have been about about three pounds a week would have been seen as a good wage. Um, uh, if you're if you're salaried, a good salary would have been uh, to be middle have a middle class lifestyle was about two hundred and fifty pounds was the was the minimum for middle class lifestyle. So, so if you're on three pounds a week, that's about one hundred and fifty pounds a year. I think maths, my, my maths is right. Um, if you're if you're salaried, you're going to be starting on about two hundred and fifty pounds a year. So it's quite a big gap already in your earning power. Um, but obviously, once you're on the, you know, your um, increments are so different. So if you're on a on a wage, you're going to be going up shillings every week, 20 shillings and a pound. So you might have a five shilling or a 10 shilling pay rise every year. If you're salaried, you're going to have a 20 pound pay rise every year. So your, so your salary just rockets. So you have this big divide in earnings and status. And most women are coming in to wage jobs. This is absolutely true at the beginning. Um, there's only, there's a, you know, salaried women are few. Um, and it, there are lots of salaried men. They're mainly engineers. So you have uh, women coming in, as was completely normal at that time, to do all the sec- secretarial jobs because t- you had to have typing, um, duplicating, um, that, you know, photo, um, tele- telephony, all these things were women's work. Uh, part of clerical work was shared by men and women. So women are coming in to do the, the those backbone jobs. Very important because you have to have everything typed, every, all the scripts, everything needs to be typed. Um, but where the BBC differs is that you 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 know as you as you go up the incremental scale, um, you know you might end up earning earn five pounds a week, which is equivalent to a salary um, salary post. But then you might also be lucky enough to become salaried. So these, whereas so many women in the UK at that time was in the kind of dead end jobs, where they were stuck on a kind of a, on a on a low salary, on a low wage. At the BBC, women were jumping across to become salaried and then earning, you know, very a very so, you know substantially very good uh, amount of money for a woman at that time. So there, so that status thing helps. Um, but you know, most most women were in those sort of background roles but they're important you know um often they were stepping up far beyond um if you were if you were a secretary or a short-hand typist working in, in a small in an office to a producer you would very likely be doing an awful lot of production production jobs so you, know, you were learning those sorts of skills as you went along as well so then you might be a private secretary so instead of being in the secretarial pool you would work specifically with somebody and you might even get salaried in that way yeah. That, that, that's very much how how it would work. Um, so there's a picking order in, amongst the secretarial staff as well. So you would come in probably as a, as a typist. And if you, and yeah, the BBC was, was was spotting talent. I mean, that's one of the things it did generally was spotting talent. So it's spotting talent amongst its own staff as well. Um, so it, some women did well. Obviously, what we don't know because I mean, this you asked me earlier about where all this comes from. Um, most of it comes from <laughs> from the um, BBC's written archive centre at Caversham. Uh, which is a, an extraordinary uh, place of just green files upon green files, um, and the, the story is quite hard. You have had to pick it out from um, from lots of different departmental files. Lots of them are missing. So obviously, it's a 
it's an impression I, I'm giving. I don't have I didn't have access to all the all the files or everyone's uh, staff records. They, the staff records that they have are women, obviously, who became salaried. Mm-hmm. So um, picking up what happened to the um, to the other women has been, you know, it's been a jigsaw pit puzzle and uh, trying to, to kind of tra- track people's careers and look at what, what people were doing, looking at all sorts of sources and also the kind of staff magazines and there's lots of things in the newspapers. So you can pick piecing this, this kind of story together. Yeah. Um, but as far as I can see, we, most women uh, at that time, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to step into a little bit of, of, of her marriage, which is a really important and significant thing. So, so actually, most, I want you to wait with the marriage. Um, <laughs> we could wait yeah. with the marriage because it's a huge uh, issue in the book, and I think it's really fascinating. Um, but maybe we'll just backtrack for a second um, and, you know, just try and sketch again what, could they be doing? So we have the typist, we have the ones that would be uh, promoted to, you know, secretaries of senior staff, and then they have the people in the telephone exchange. Um, can you talk a bit about the librarians? Uh, and yes, the women so they, that go a bit higher in the, in yes. the ranks. So, um, so, so one of the interesting things that seems to happen at the BBC is women come in and they, are, they start off other as kind of short-term typists, um, or there might be clerks, those sorts of jobs. Uh, and then, so it's just for example, someone like uh, Florence Mills, who, who comes in um, as, a, as a short-term typist, you know, she comes in as an assistant, actually, because there's, a, there's also a kind of a, this job, this amazing job called assistant, that just means anything at all, really. Um, but she she is very, she starts collecting books. Um, she realises that there's a kind of, she's working in, in kind of information section. She realises that the BBC needs a library. There's a tiny library that has been started, but she kind of just runs with it and starts collecting books, gathering information. And so she develops the library and becomes the librarian. She's promoted to be librarian because, you know, that's what she's doing. And in fact, she'll be with the BBC right up until, until the 1950s. So she has this incredibly long career with the BBC and sets up the library library and becomes BBC librarian uh, and which it becomes an absolutely enormous institution um, and there are lots of branch libraries so this is an incredibly important part of the BBC uh, who who need information for their scripts and for for all sorts of things they need to to know what's happening Um, and then a news information section is gathered as well so this is that's a library thing so she comes in and makes that job there's another uh, woman called Kathleen Nines who comes again she starts as a, as a secretary uh, and I don't know how she gets into doing photographs because that's not that's nothing I've, I haven't found those documents maybe one day I will but she starts becoming responsible for the photographs again the BBC is it, it, very visual they have lots of publications they're starting to have things like Radio Times they're sending they are very good at promoting themselves um, so they're always in the, the press and the press need pictures um, they have they have the school broadcasting, which is taking off, they have pamphlets, they need pictures. So um, Kathleen Nine starts to gather together pictures uh, and also takes photographs of the BBC, which is why there's a, an incredible photographic collection that's from the kind of uh, mid-20s onwards. So she's taking photographs, she's managing photographs, and she becomes head of this photographic section. Again, employing lots and lots of staff. Um, women are going in to do, do kind of press office work. Um, they're, they're, doing, they're doing all sorts of things. They might work on exhibitions or they might be becoming furniture buyers and working their way up. There's lots and lots of different areas that women are going into um, like or working in publications. I mean, there's lots of women working in the publications mm-hmm. um, section. Uh, so that they are, they're doing really interesting work and often, uh, often working with men, 
pretty much the same level as well. So it's a very vibrant and kind of exciting place to be. Well, was there a type of woman that was more likely to apply and uh, obtain a job at the BBC in the interwar period? I would, I would say yes. I mean, they, they, um, the main kind of professions for women at that time, things that if you wanted to, things like teaching or the civil service or nursing, those sort of things, you would have to be. You went through training. You'd be trained. These are these are places where you'd start when you were younger, and then they they would train you. Um, the BBC took women who were already trained and experienced. Um, so you you would have had to have had you know, a reasonable level of, of, of education and experience to get a job there. Um, and I, I, I it's, they, it's difficult to kind of, I mean, because there's not very many records of those initial interviews. Um, you, I think a lot of it would have been word of mouth at the beginning. So it may have been someone that you knew someone who worked there. And so then you would write to that they, they, they had from the very beginning a position called the, the women's staff supervisor or the women's staff administrator. These were, these were uh, very important jobs. The, the, well, first of all, it was, um, Miss Banks and then Miss Freeman, who who held these jobs, and um, they they would they would recruit staff and they were responsible for um, for for women's lives at the BBC. So they and, and word of mouth would have been important right into the BBC. Um, I don't know who wasn't who wasn't who wasn't accepted. Obviously, you know who got those jobs, yeah. but they were they were a certain sort, yes. And they were from a certain class or background or. Well, I think they. I don't think. I think we, we, when you look at the the files, um, a lot of the secretaries, kind of typists, uh, and clerical women were were they were married to. They were called black. Their husband were called black collared workers. So they were manual workers, mm-hmm. uh, clerical workers. They were middle class women, very obviously middle class women. But they were the you know in the kind of population at the time, middle classes. Eighty percent of the population would be classed class as working class, uh, but a lot of these were aspiring working class. You know, who were kind of becoming, getting into kind of low middle class status. They, I think that's where our women, most of our women, would lie. So they are often self-educated. So if, if they left school at fourteen, they would have gone to trade secretarial. They would have gone to evening class to do secretarial courses. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're those sorts of women. Their husbands again would be trying, would be you know trying to would be aspiring. I think. So it's that those women would be there, um, yeah, and and some women, some women who'd been to university as well would would be coming through. Mm-hmm. And it's, be- it was a risk though, because at the beginning it was so unknown. You know, this it wasn't like a safe job. It wasn't necessarily as a safe job at the beginning, um, like teaching would have been. It was quite a risk, I think, to have gone into broadcasting when it was such a new industry. So what was enticing about it? I thought it became quite quickly. It became quite glamorous mm-hmm. um, being to work with with the wireless, uh, and I'm sure that the um, the kind of working conditions would have been. People would have known that it was a was a good place to work. You know, wages were reasonably good, good conditions of service. You know, they the once got to broadcasting house, really lovely bespoke offices with kind of not quite air conditioning, but you know, there was sort of. So many w- women were working horrible, cramped, dingy offices. These were really lovely offices. As you said, st- uh, subsidised canteens. Um, they had a, a matron on site. Uh, lots, lots of uh, incredible social uh, club that, uh, network developed. In fact, they had, had a BBC club, a proper kind of uh, sports pavilion and things were built in the late 20s. So lots of t- occasions to meet um, and do, I don't know, any, everything from netball, dancing, golf, you know, motoring, um, all sorts of, uh, of uh, 
um, Carlson societies, and women were there were meeting. Lots of women were getting married to fellow their colleagues. So it was a it was a very good social place to work, and glamorous, you know, because you would you would be around stars. And, and as we know, the twenties and certainly the, the, this is area of the kind of celebrity. Uh, lots of women's magazines were being full of celebrities. Cinema was about celebrities. So the fact that you might meet or you know bump into one of those people, see them in the reception, would have been very exciting. And it actually still is. I mean, when I worked at the BBC, I loved it. It was absolutely amazing. And you'd <laughs> through and you suddenly see someone really glamorous. Wow. I mean, it is, a, it is a buzz. It's great. So who was the best celebrity you met? I met so many. <laughs> difficult to say. But um, it, it, is, it is very exciting, especially when you get a big, you know, kind of a big film star would come through. So it, it is, it's, uh, it, it's really, um, it is a really, it, it is very exciting place to work. So, in that sense, that I know that sense, yeah. Um, and so I can, I, I mean, I can imagine that then it would, I think, have been even greater because it was so new and unusual that you'd be in that situation. So let's get to marriage because it was a big issue for many of these women that are were actually working in a place that maybe many of them liked very much and had some developed uh, other goals. Um, how did marriage impact their professional path? Well, the big, the big is, is really quite extraordinary in this, in this respect. In fact, that's how I first, that's how I first got the idea really to do, uh, do my PhD that, that led to, 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 to work to writing Bar and the Wallace. Um, was I found these marriage bar files at the BBC, and I'd never heard about marriage bars or knew about the marriage in the 20s and 30s. So in, in the UK in the 20s and 30s, and I, I would imagine very probably in lots of countries around the world, um, women. In many cases, you had to resign when you got married. There was an so things like teaching, civil service, nursing, lots of factory shop work, banks. When you got married, you had to resign. Um, I, but, but also at the same time, there's an absolute total convention that you that you leave work when you get married. So there are two things. So even if there wasn't a marriage bar, that you would have, there was an expectation that you would become a housewife and that your you know that you would your your kind of your role in life was with your was your family uh, and that would have been something that women cherish look forward to excited about this is what this is how most women would have seen their their, their lives um and it wouldn't have been anything unusual about that um the, the hard thing is for women who professional women who had who been who'd been highly trained so if you trained to be a teacher you've done all that training and you got married and you had to resign it was incredibly it was a horror, horror absolutely horrible um decision you had to make which is why most well teachers were spinsters in the in this period similarly the civil service um and lots of these professions although i have to say that um there were there was a big feminist kind of drive to get these things changed and, and and there were there were changes so gradually when we get into the 30s some in some local authorities, married teachers are allowed, and by, by then, similarly in the civil service, there are some married women are allowed. So it, there's a, a slow shift to allow some women to to keep their jobs when they get married. Um, so the BBC, when it starts, has no doesn't mind care if you're married or not. It's just re- recruiting. Doesn't, marriage isn't an issue at the beginning. Uh, in fact, to the extent that Mary Somerville, who will become very, very the most significant. Woman in the interwar years, but in, in 1939, uh, she's earning 1500 a year. I mean, she's she, she's uh, the director of school broadcasting, has an incredible career at the BBC. Um, 
in 19, she gets married in 1928, and um, when she, it asks that she's expecting a baby, um, they, and that she wants to cut, you know, keep her job, uh, they actually introduce maternity leave for her. So that's how the BBC introduced maternity leave, which would have been, I, I found very few records of maternity leave at this time. I think it may have been offered some places, but in the 20s, um, marriage bars got, became, became, there were more marriage bars in the 20s um, than before. Um, so married women could come to the BBC, and then in 1932, they introduced a marriage bar, um, so that married women are no longer uh, welcome at the BBC, except they seem to, tr- to try every way which round, way they can get round this marriage bar in many ways. So it's a kind of a, <laughs> called it a marriage bar of convenience, really. Um, so they don't, um, well, they have a marriage bar, and, and uh, there's all kinds of reasons where they may have introduced one. I think it was, the, I, I think I meant, this idea that once 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 they move to broadcasting house by the early thirties, they are very aware that they they want you know they want to be um, uh, they they feel that they want to be part of the establishment. They feel that's really important. They're likening themselves more and more to the civil service. They feel that they're professional establishment establishment organisation, and because marriage bars are in all these sorts of organisations, that's one reason why it happens. But also, of course, you have to remember this is a. This is the, the, the early 30s, so you've had this, the Depression. You know, there is a, a huge unemployment, so that's going to be a big driver as well. So there is a there are cause for women not to be at work at this time. You know, they're taking jobs from men who need jobs. So those the economic reasons um, and also um, the kind of the, the idea of, of uh, that kind of establishment reasons. But in the BBC, if you look in the files, it actually, in some ways, there is a kind of a cynical reason it seems to be brought in, and that is... Um, that it gives the, the, um, them a reason to get rid of women that they don't like, which is rather uncomfortable reading. But there is a, this idea that it's initially it, the kind of the spark for it is a, is a, is a couple of is a, oh, women who they've been seen to be abusing the system of marriage leave because the BBC are very generous and when you get married you have leave and various things and, and marriage pay. And they see that they see some women abusing this by um, taking taking the leave, taking the money coming back and then leaving when they've got the money. Uh, and so they so they decide that, that, that they think that if they have a marriage bar, then they can just, they can um, not, not allow these women to continue working. Uh, it's all very complicated and fascinating, but they what they actually do in the end is they introduce a, a marriage tribunal. Because they, where, they have exceptional women that are so well-trained and will not be replaceable so easily. So, so, so they definitely don't want to get rid of married all their married women. I mean, you know, for example, Mary Somerville is a is a married woman and, and extremely important. Um, so they they it's it's uh, something that there's there's very clear criteria of, of that you have to meet so you can stay at the BBC. Um, and there's a tribunal where you can present a case. Um, and it's it, very few. It's you know only about. I think 29 women go go before the tribunal. Um, I think only 13 actually lose their, uh, are, you know, have to resign. So it's, it's tiny numbers we're talking about. Although I imagine that behind the scenes, we're, we women whose cases would be hopeless are probably told not to, not even to bother. I would imagine that's happening as well. But it is this idea of of how you judge who who is who's worthy of keeping their job, you know. Uh, and they, so there are criteria like. An ability to manage your your home life and work. So there's an expectation that you will be managing the home and managing work. Um, that you're that you're that you're committed to a career. Um, 
uh, and uh, also compassionate circumstances. There's lots of reasons that they're looking they're looking for to, to keep women, and they 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 often, the ones they want to keep they do usually manage to find a way. Not always, but usually. Any woman, you know, if you've been, if you're loyal, if you've been at the BBC for a long time, you're very unlikely to have to have to, to leave. So they, on one hand, trying to be respectful and have a marriage bar, but on the other hand, trying in many ways to make sure that they don't, you know, lose the women that they want. <laughs> so we were talking about exceptional women. Which were, or maybe you can give an example of one or two women that you found extremely ex- inspirational or surprising. Well, in it, I mentioned Mary Somerville, who is a, an extraordinary character, um, and she came. She came to BBC in 1925. She was so she was again. She was 28. She she she'd had health issues, and she'd been at Oxford. Many many of these exceptional women have been to Oxford University. That seems to be the main catchment area for for women who were coming to BBC. Um, but she she um, according to you know the, you read the documents uh, and read diary and things. She she heard a very early school broadcast in, in 1924 when she was at the university, and it apparently inspired her. Um, she got in touch with John Reith and said she wanted to come to BBC, and um, she basically um, kind of you know she. Said she was going to come. She, I love the fact that she uh, didn't ask for a high salary from the start. Yes. She, uh, she, she, she agreed to a low salary for a three-month trial, and then she wanted uh, 400 a year. So she got her, which is more than the young men were earning in the, in the uh, education department. So she came in like she was a force. You know, she was a, she had, I know she had kind of a salon. She seemed quite a grand person with a kind of a salon when she was at the university. Um, and she effectively she just took on school broadcasting. Uh, the, the man who was running it was older and wasn't obviously very, you know, he wasn't, didn't have that kind of drive and inspiration that she had. She just just absolutely drove school broadcasting and made it incredibly successful um, in, in schools. And so, and that was her, that was her career, career right the way through to the 30s. I mean, ultimately she will go on um, and become the first controller of talk. She can, after the war, she has a, a she, she switches to a, a bigger role at, on general talks. Uh, so she's, uh, she's a very inspiring person and the kind of the, the other kind of big name is Hilda Matheson who who came in uh, she, she came in 1926 and on the 1st of January when the BBC becomes the British Broadcasting Corporation when it gets its its uh, Royal Charter um, she come that at that point she becomes the director of talks the first director of talks and this is just something just to be aware of the, the spoken word is talks at this time um, scripted and rehearsed talks. Uh, they don't really do have things like interviews or those sorts of programs or discussion programs. They're they're rare. They do gradually creep in in the thirties. In the twenties, it's it's the talk. It's a talk. Um, and Hilda Matheson again is inspirational in changing the whole culture of the BBC. Um, enticing kind of the grand lots of grand names she was kind of linked to the Bloomsbury set and also just very many of the kind of the the great thinkers movers and shakers at the time they started to broadcast um and so so people like Virginia Woolf were coming on and H.G. Wells and all these sorts of of, of grand people and so also kind of script to talk about a, a topic that they're interested in and they would in, record it in their own voice without question it would be like you know like pre- a presentation 
It was they were they were they were they weren't recorded at this point. They were they would be live, but yes. Yeah, so they would they would have a, a time slot. They would. Um, Hilda Matheson was very good at she she was very aware that you had to. But when you broadcast, I mean, if I'm, I'm talking to you now, having a conversation, that's how you needed to speak on the wireless. Right. What they didn't want was people coming and going. I am talking to you today about something because that's how people would would speak it maybe in a hall or something. They they had to try and learn how to be conversational in the way that they spoke. So she was very important in getting in trying to get people to broadcast as good broadcasters. Mm-hmm. Um, incredible range of people, yes, coming in with scripted speech talks in the evening, the evening programs, which were the. Um, where the kind of the grandees would speak, um, a whole range of incredible series she she would organise. But also, uh, I'm very aware that there was this captive audience of women at home in the day because they don't feel married. You're at home in the day, um, so she was very important in developing women's talks um, and programmes. I think were very inspiring. Um, where around 1928, when British women get the full vote, equal franchise. There's lots of programmes about Parliament, citizenship. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, there's a programme that she started back, back then, in 1929, that's still on Radio 4, BBC Radio 4 today. That's, you know, she started a programme that was called The Week in, in Westminster, The Week in Parliament. That still runs today. So she was, um, and that was aimed at women initially. So she, she was uh, just very, very influential. She ended up falling out with John Reith. Uh, and leaving in in nineteen in, in, in 1932, but again, a very important woman who was there in a role um, with met lots of men on her staff. I mean, you know, uh, and uh, was people. She was inspiring to everybody, apart from ultimately to John Reed. I think when they, when those you know then there was a kind of a falling out. But um, so there are there are these very significant women, and another woman that just I I've got a particular kind of um, attachment to is a, a woman called Elise Sprott who worked with uh, Hilda Matheson on talk, on women's talks. And there's quite an interesting chemistry, I think, there going on. So Elise Sprott was a much, was an older woman. And Hilda Matheson, again, comes, she's in her 30s when she comes into BBC, late 30s, which is seen as a very good age for a woman at, at that time. And Elise Sprott is, uh, Miss Sprott is similarly uh, an older woman when she comes in. She started off by doing broadcasts for women's programmes then gets a job at the BBC, and she she again works on women's women's talks. But I think there's a quite interesting tension, but also something that works very well with her and Hilda Matheson. Um, Hilda Matheson's doing the much grander kind of citizenship programmes, um, whereas uh, Elise Brock is very into the housewifery programmes, which is so important for women because they're in the home. You know, they they and and often now they you know whereas in the past you would have had servants. You know, often you are managing your own homes now, um, so. All these kind of crafts and home craft and bringing up children, all these things are absolutely central to women's lives. So she's much more focused on domestic um, programmes, which are very important. And Hilda Matheson is doing the, the more kind of educational, escapist programmes. So together they work very well, although, again, they have a falling out. And Elise Brock goes off to become women's press representative. representative. Mm-hmm. And then she kind of bombards, and from the time she takes on that job in 1932, you just find BBC women are in the papers all the time. Um, so, again, a wonderful source for me. So I, I thank her for that. <laughs> so she, she's someone who has kind of an interesting, very interesting interesting job, um, a, a, a different sort of woman, not a university-educated woman. Hilda Matheson had also been to Oxford. So there's a, there are kind of, you know, women who've been to university and those who haven't, and 
then I think that may have created some sort of, some sort of tensions because you would have had a different different lifestyle, perhaps. So, you know, I found very interesting that many of the women that you worked on, and it is Elise Spurt is, is one of them, um, work on publicizing the BBC. So they're very aware of its kind of, um, of leaving a historical legacy uh, that would kind of anchor the BBC's place in British culture. But at the same time, they don't kind of anchor their place in the organization. I, I, that, well, at the time, I think it was known that women were working at the BBC because there was, there were so, there were, you know, there were so often right. in the papers. So I, I don't think that they would have, I think they would have been quite horrified. I don't know, who knows? But I don't, that kind of dismissal, the way that they kind of vanish uh, is, I, I don't think they would have imagined that would have, would have happened. Um, so they, they were passionate about the BBC and, and also, um, I, I think that, that loyalty, that sense of loyalty is, 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 is one of the keys, the kind of the key things about the BBC is it was, it did feel like that time like a kind of a family in many ways. I mean, of course there would have been lots of issues and things, you know, people who weren't happy and all sorts of problems and things going on. But generally you get a sense of it as being an organisation where people, you know, there's a, there's a level of care, loyalty and, and, de and dedication. And yes, if people would have gone out there and promoted the BBC as much as possible, certainly. So I want to ask you actually as a former female employee, do you think you had a special insight into um, both the roles of women at the organization, but also the kind of challenges and opportunities they had? Um, was it like an oral mythology that were passed, you know, about successful women that might have been passed down Uh, more veteran employees and new ones. And... What I think is really interesting is that by the time, so I joined the BBC in 1987, very long time ago. Um, and actually there were, you know, women, there, were, there, there, was, there was only one woman that anyone had ever heard of, really, who was Grace Wyndham Goldie. Mm -hmm. uh, and she's not in my book, really. Um, Because she she came in she came in in the late thirties and she was a kind of a freelancer. I mean, I've written more about women who were kind of employees, so she was there in the background. But she she would become in the fifties an incredibly significant person at the BBC, working on the kind of all their kind of current affairs and politi politics programs. And she was a legendary figure. But that she was the only woman that. I'd ever heard of, or most women had ever heard of, or most men had ever heard of. So as I wrote the book, everyone would say, oh, Grace Lindon Goldie, to me. Um, she is very significant, but no, there wasn't this legacy at all, really. Uh, and in fact, it, I felt that I was one of those women that was kind of a part of trying to improve things for women, because things had got quite, were getting increasingly stale um, at that time. You know, women were, were the, the, the first um, women on the board, I think, was 1990. I mean, it's incredibly, I mean, when I started, there wasn't, there had been, never been a woman on the board of their board of management. So these things happened very late. So, um, but That was interesting. It's one reason why I think I felt so passionate about this discovering this history that was just completely un hidden. Um, but I think, yes, when, when you talk about whether I feel an empathy or I, I can't help but feel something, because I, I worked in Broadcasting House, uh, and so those corridors, th these women would have come in there. That's where they would have worked. Um, so 
just understanding that loyalty. I had a, I had, I was. Most people I know who work there feel very dedicated and very loyal to the BBC. Um, and so those, those, that sort of that idea that you're still doing something for the public good, all these things still very, very strong drivers there. Um, I actually went to Savoy Hill because that's so much of this period was at Savoy Hill and I had the chance to go to Savoy Hill and it was being refurbished. So they, they stripped it back to just its bare corridors. And that was extraordinary to go there because... I get to, to get a sense of what it must it must be like working there, what was very important for me, yeah. um, because there is a, you know there is there must be similarities to how you make make programs, um, you know how you find star, how you find guests as a producer. What, what things haven't changed that much, you know. You're trying to find good broadcasters. That's exactly the same. That hasn't changed. The, the technology's changed, but the actual role of a producer hasn't changed that much. Uh, so I'm, I kind of feel that I know these women maybe in a, in a, in a different way. Although, of course, that's an, you can't, you know, that's a problem in itself, isn't it? When you, that identity, identity with, 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 with these characters. But uh, I, it, it does make me feel closer to them in that respect, in that I have been doing a similar job to, to many of the, the, the women that I'm writing about. Kate, I really want to thank you for this conversation and for the book, which I really, really, really enjoyed it really displays an era of amazing women. Um, so thank you. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs>